Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, I'm Henry Southern and today on The Culture Bar and as part of our Under the Spotlight series, we'll be discussing race and the civic responsibility of the arts. And to explore this vital topic, we are delighted to be joined by four wonderful panellists. First up, Michael Asante, aka Mikey J, producer, composer, musician, dancer and DJ. Mikey is the co-founder and co-artist director of the hip-hop dance company Boy Blue. Next, Kaya Brown, artist coordinator at PolyArts and Creative Access alumni. We also have Cliff Fluey, joint head of media entertainment at Lewis Silken, chair of the Ivers Academy Trust and Help Musicians Trustee. And last, but by no means least, Samir Savant, CEO of St. George's Bristol and trustee for the Harrison Parrott Foundation. What a panel. Welcome, everyone. Hello. Hello. That's good. Great to have you guys with us. Now, for the purpose of this podcast, we are going to use the language of ethnically diverse backgrounds, communities, or heritage. We recognize there isn't necessarily a consensus and the appropriate terminology is constantly evolving, but we hope it is clear that our intentions are respectful. So turning to our panel, following the murder of George Floyd in July, 2020, there was heightened media coverage for the Black Lives Matter movement, which led to profound public action. In light of this, many organizations within the arts, culture and media responded with racial equity and social impact statements. So Mikey, coming to you first, Boy Blue is resident of Barbican and in June, Barbican Stories was published. There was a record of discrimination in the workplace written by current and former employees who have experienced racism in the Barbican. So with all that in mind, it's quite a big place to start off. Do you feel there's been meaningful change? Um, it's interesting. So yeah, that's a big question to start off with. I think the thing, for me, in my experience thus far, and obviously we've been um, artistic associates for like 10 years now, we're coming up to the 11th year next year. And a lot of the work was beginning then, you know, that 10 years ago. Um, a lot of the people that I've been affiliated with, a lot of people that I've been working with, had been connecting with me, talking with me, um, entering into so many other kind of um, opportunities with us prior to that moment. So I was always, I've always felt like I've been in good company in that regard. It wasn't a reactionary thing. And I would never ever align myself with any individuals that were doing it after the fact, if I'm honest. Um, so all the people that I had connected with and that I'd been working with prior to that moment, um, you know, it was just business. It's gonna sound really raw essentially, but it was business as usual. We were already preparing and, and motivated to do these things um, uh, prior to to that moment, if anything, it just it just lit even more of a fire in everyone's soul to kind of see the change that we want. We've always wanted to see. Um, but yeah, I think what it did do in in a roundabout way, because to see, you know, your answer, your question was, have we seen the change? I don't know if we've seen it. We're seeing it. We're seeing the conversations become a little rawer, a little more honest, a little bit more challenging. And, and and open arms to that challenge. Um, and it's just allowed us to kind of really just go a little deeper, I would say. Um, and I think with time, you know, everything becomes even more liberal. Things become a little bit more 
understood because there are still so much more nuances within the community anyway that still need to be kind of unearthed, discussed, and even um, um, challenged even more. So yeah, I would say the change is not here, but it's it's coming and it's it's moving slowly. Um, and I think it's on the right trajectory. Well, that's really, really encouraging to hear. And um, and, it's, and as you say, perhaps it's, it's premature to have that distance. And as you say, it's ongoing. I wonder, Samir, in, in Bristol, I know you've only been in that position for a few months, but what's your perspective from there and also from your other experiences? Um, yeah, I mean, there was a real spotlight on Bristol, of course, um, as a result of um, the murder of George Floyd and subsequent Black Lives Matter. Um, the statue of Edward Colston, the slave trader, was um, removed and then thrown into the Avon, and then he's subsequently been fished, uh, fished out of the Avon and he's been put into, a, into the M shed. And um, back to Michael's point about honesty, you know, like you can go and see the statue, which is covered in graffiti, um, and you can say what you think should happen to that statue. You can take part in the debate. And, you know, I, I lived in London for 30 years and coming to Bristol, I, I really feel genuinely that the conversations about race are much more uh, like it, it's much more part of this, the civic makeup of the city, the history of the city. Like no one is in denial about the fact that, you know, the, you know, the, all these people that made huge fortunes in, in Bristol. Uh, it was on on the back of the misery of of the the slave trade, you know, and the the you know thousands and tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men, women, and children who were enslaved and treated abysmally during that time. Um, and I I just feel that there's a real honesty, maybe because in Bristol it was so, you know, people are very close to this, you know, and the made being a major trading city like like Liverpool or, or London. But I, you know, there is an honesty here and there is real acceptance that we, we, you know, we need to kind of look at these issues with great clarity and honesty and, and try to, to move on. Um, in terms of my own work here at, at St George's, you know, we are, and, and related to my career, I mean, um, Chineke came down for a concert and Osborne Clark, who are a local law firm here, who um, they're, they're running their own kind of um, diversity and inclusion initiatives. And they wanted me to speak very much openly about my experience. And I, I kind of said I picked the two wrong careers that the worst careers I could have for being a person of colour. One is classical music and one is and the other one is fundraising. And so I was fundraising in classical music. So double disadvantaged and so used to being the only non-white face at conferences or at events, concerts even. Um, and, you know, these things have to change. And this is why I'm proud to be a trustee of the Harrison Parrott Foundation, because we're all about making change from within the industry. Um, but also, you know, we, we've all got to take steps. And I think sometimes people are just frozen into this stasis of inactivity because they don't know what's the right thing to do. And they need signposts and they need people like us saying, you know, this is something you can do that's actually going to make a difference tomorrow. So we're advertising currently for two, two vacancies, head of marketing and commercial events manager, if anyone's interested, just saying. But one of the things we've really put our neck out and very few arts organisations shamefully are doing this is saying that if you self-identify as disabled or from black and ethnic minority community and you meet the essential criteria, you're guaranteed an interview. So it's just things like if, you, if it's not enough to say we welcome applications 
organizations from all areas of the community that is just such a weak statement so you know i'm really keen that we move forward with with real positive activities ways of engaging with different communities well there's a whole host of stuff there which i think we'll definitely come back to programming fundraising also implying positive discrimination which is something we know we want to talk about but um also a slight plug as well we've done a contested heritage podcast where we talk about the colston statue so check that out on the culture bar from a few months ago but cliff can i come to you about with this question in mind about the accountability and the response of arts organizations perhaps within the recording industry context and also your experience more broadly yeah, I mean, I, I do think that the death of George Floyd has been a watershed moment, really. I've been in the industry for the last 25 years and Rodney King and Stephen Lawrence and too many black people being brutalised, murdered, assaulted. Um, with Jordan C mindset, which um, doesn't put up with this shit, which is great. Um, I think a lot of it had to do with the heightened uh, emotions of the pandemic. And I found myself now in a strange position, which I'm sure many of my colleagues here, is you turn around and you're suddenly the most senior, if not only, black person of power that you've got. And I don't know quite when that happened. And then I realised I became a spokesman, but then it became a duty to speak up. So I found myself convening uh, panels across the entire music industry, across the legal industry, across the world of arts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that I've never had before in 25 years. I've had uh, colleagues of mine, partners of mine, in terms of from a legal perspective, uh, you know, business partners saying to me, I've never understood my white privilege before, or please explain to me what it was like. Um, and again, it, it, there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of weight in that. Um, but what I really do welcome, and again, we should lead into it, is actually I do genuinely sense a real change Certainly in the recording business, you are seeing uh, positive action. We can come back to the positive discrimination point as well. And all of that comes after a genuine open dialogue. Um, I think there's a long way to go for colleagues that may feel bought, you know, burdened by their privilege or feel that they can't speak up or they're not in a position to speak to those areas. And I think it's incumbent upon those of us of colour and those in leadership to actually help people with everything from terms of reference to nomenclature and creating safe spaces in order for that debate to continue. I think the thing that will really, really shut down debate is any kind of fear of cancellation or fear of being accused of all the things that we hate the most. And actually, if we can now really lean into positive action. And I do think as well that it is incumbent upon those of us who have gained some you know, uh, in my case, I'm waving my fingers around power in the industry to wield it for good and actually be part of that change. Yeah, yeah. there's lots of nods, which, of course, won't uh, carry across a podcast format. But um, Kaya, do you you were nodding as well quite furiously. Do you, do you also feel there's a sense of real change and an open dialogue, as Cliff is saying? I do. I'm quite new to the um, music industry. Um, from my experience, and since this is since 2020, I think everything that happened in 2020 opened the conversation, and that was really good. And people are starting to ask more questions um, and listen to each other and share experiences and talk about how we can move forward. I think um, what Michael was saying is interesting, actually, is why weren't we questioning these things before? And it's about sort of 
now everyone is sort of waking up or sort of having these discussions. How do we move forward from that? Um, but not in a way where it's sort of like, this is what we have to do. And we're doing this because we have to do. We should be doing it because we want to, and it's the right thing to do. And if I think whoever it is in their um, businesses or industries, I think you need to be doing it because you know that it's what you should be doing and you want to. I don't think it should be because you feel like you have to or your products won't sell because you're not doing this and you're not meeting a quota. Yeah. I think that's the challenge, Kaya, in, in the sense that you now have to, and I don't know whether anyone else on the panel is, is focused or seen this in any way, is that you now have to be careful of who's trying to align with you, who's trying to talk with you, who's trying to do it from a pandering point of view or from a performative point of view. And that's become the, the annoying part of some of the work now since that moment, is that now you're getting bad actors who know their bottom line is affected if they do not um, be seen to be doing X, Y, and Z. And then on the other side, there has become just people making the wrong decisions or getting the wrong piece people in place because they want to have that placeholder of their doing the job. So that's the other thing you're, you're, you're getting um, just just yeah people being gung ho with who they're putting in those positions who aren't either had the right experience and then when that comes into play what ends up happening is it fails or it, it, it it's tainted by that experience because you didn't do your due diligence in finding the right person with the right experience or supporting that individual to get to that level. So that's something that I think I've, I've seen ebbed and flowed during my 20 year career in, in music and in dance in, in, in the entertainment world is that you, you find people being brought into positions, but either with the wrong support just because it is a pandering or performative exercise. But in this particular situation, it's nicer just for me now having that amount of time, and I'm, I'm guessing for, for some other people on the panel as well, is that you are able to lend the ear in that way um, or lend the voice in that way. Because yeah, it is kind of challenging to, to Cliff's point, just in the sense of you find yourself in rooms upon rooms, conversations upon conversations, Zooms upon Zooms, having to kind of be the person, the spokesperson. But yeah, you know, um, it's better now in that regard because time has gone on and more people with more experience and more um, um, I guess the right language are able to to speak on these these subjects. Thank you both. Yeah, that's that's very insightful. And very and um, I mean, would it is it too simple to distill this topic of positive action as a I've, I've spoken to all of you about a fear of tokenism versus meritocracy? Um, Cliff, I know you've had you said to me you've had a full one eighty on this recently. It'd be great to get your insights. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's actually, um, it was preceding 2020. And again, I don't think it was just advancing years or just having grown up in a system. But I was somewhat seduced by the specious view that we live in a meritocracy and that it would somehow be patronising or wrong for people to be preferred. But when you actually break down that the idea of a meritocracy is based on the fundamental lie that everyone starts from the same place or that certain people aren't being specifically denied or kept down or there are specific advantages that people can buy or be born into. So that somehow realises that it's not really a meritocracy. And actually what we do is that we've got a hierarchy. And the real question is, is people don't even aren't aware of it or they don't know how to navigate it. So I think that's it from the biggest element. I think boiling it all down, 
where I've gotten to is that there has not, there has never been any positive change without positive action. You know, it's like, well, if women had just waited long enough, they'd have got the vote, or that have waited long enough, they'd have been able to control the reproduction, or, and and that's why I think positive action. You know, the word discrimination is so weighty; it carries so much in and of itself prejudicial terms that actually we should move it away to positive action. And actually, if you are going to do positive action, could be as much as you know they're doing now, is blinding surnames or blinding schools. You know, so you're not giving cues as to where or how someone grew up or what their background was, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so actually, as you said, you know, having, you know, sort of guaranteed shortlisting or indeed just a guaranteed interview, you know, just the whole idea that you'll at least have a shot of where you can do it. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm in the position through pride or anything like that, that my kids are independent schools and they've had their lowest number of uh, Oxford, uh, Oxbridge applications in a decade because there's positive action going on. And genuinely, I'm delighted with that. I think that's great. I think it's absolutely great. And I've got no problem with that whatsoever. You know, and again, I've got endless anecdotes, as I'm sure I have, in relation to discrimination, out-and-out racism. And actually, you know, a lot of the received pain of what I thought was a meritocracy didn't involve, as a kid, having excrement put through your door. Or, you know, the, the pain of seeing um, some oil going through your door and someone having tried to put a lighted rag through it you realise that actually in the context of that, of where and how I grew up, the idea that it's a meritocracy is faintly ludicrous. So we have to put that aside and realise that it's all about positive action. And there's no negativity, there's nothing, there's no commentary in relation to people's barrack. You know, people can't help being born white and privileged as much as they can be helped born with a certain colour or any other attribute. But really what there shouldn't be is negative discrimination so positive action not positive discrimination that's what i strongly believe thank you and thank you for sharing those frankly very shocking stories um is it right then to say it's equity rather than equality with that that's not said that's good um samir just picking up from some of the things which cliff is saying within classical music blind auditioning has been more prevalent and seem to be very successful in helping with diversity on the stage. Have, have you had any experience of that or, or aware of schemes that are doing this well? Yeah, so I, um, I was at an Association of British Orchestras concert, uh, Association of British Orchestras conference a few years ago, and they had people over from the States talking about blind auditioning. And I understood also for this famous production of Amadeus, uh, at the National Theatre where Salieri is famously uh, a black man, a black actor, and that was all based on um, blind auditioning. Um, because the thing here is it's not out and out racism. I don't think any of our white colleagues in the creative industries, they would be horrified if they were considered, they would consider themselves to be liberal minded anti-racist but they you cannot eliminate unconscious bias this is the thing and and really um this whole thing about positive action is about eliminating barriers to success because you know um i, I was going to talk about two aspects to this one is uh, is our, our audiences in the music industry and the other one is about the the performing artists and in both cases i'm just keen that here at st george's on my watch the people that are coming through our doors reflect the city of Bristol. 
uh, and similarly with the artists and even more so with the artists because I think artists from a, a range of backgrounds have had different life experiences it shows in their art the art is so much more rich and and engaging you know whatever their genre um, if we've got artists who are not from one very narrow demographic um, and that I'm really passionate and keen about that so the, the more I can do to bring down barriers to people ac accessing these opportunities um, and being able to tell their story um, that that's really what I'm keen on. I suppose it's not just on the stage it's off the stage as well and Kai, I know you've had experience this through, through creative access. Um, can you tell us more about that, please? Yep. So um, how I got involved with Harrison Parrot and PolyArts to begin with was through um, Creative Access, which is an organisation um, mainly for uh, ethnically um, diverse people, um, people from different backgrounds, um, you know, different classes, everything. So I signed up there and then they offer a lot of opportunities to different people, such as internships and getting them involved in the creative industry, um, which is very hard to do if you're if you don't have, you know, you didn't go to university, you didn't do a music degree or you don't have these sort of qualifications. Um, and I found it really helpful because for me going to school in Lambeth, London, um, there wasn't a lot of opportunities in secondary school to, to really explore certain subjects like music, which is, you know, in, they cut it out of our GCSEs, we weren't allowed to do music, we weren't allowed to do psychology, all of these sorts of subjects that um, a lot of schools who have the funding do study and we didn't get that. So I remember thinking, oh, I really want to do this and I can't. Um, and the only way to get involved was, you know, sign up to a music class outside of school, but then you have to pay for that. So it's just about these opportunities are not there for everyone. Um, so I think there needs to be definitely with education, there needs to be more, um, more people interested in education and educating the young people on not just science, math and English um, and more opportunities. And I think, yeah, programs like Creative Access has, have helped me personally, but it's um, it would be nice to see this happening more with younger people, not just when when you're at the age of twenty, you can sort of sign up for these things. So would you say that then also socioeconomic issues also affects accessibility mm -hmm. to the arts, and that's not just from an yeah. education perspective, but also through, from education through the concert halls? Is that is that fair to say, or something you have found? Um, yeah, a hundred percent. I think. Um, a lot of people I know would not have been able to go to a concert in, you know, the Royal Albert Hall if it wasn't for a school trip or a teacher who's, you know, interested in sort of got tickets for these students. And it's really sad because a lot of people really want to do go to these things. Um, and I think, me personally, I just don't think I would have had, I would have been able to um, have the experience if it wasn't through different programs or me signing up and working really hard. So that way I can get, you know, something to go to one of these things. Um, and it's just, 
really inaccessible for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's definitely got to do with social um, economic issues as well as racism. But the, the reason why I, you know, it's it sort of, um, there's a big gray area is because I think a lot of schools like the one I went to is there was predominantly black and Latino. Um, this was a black and Latino school that I went to. And in areas like Lambeth, these are where most of us are going to school. But it's just interesting that these are the schools that are getting the least amount of funding, um, the least amount of attention. And I, it's not a coincidence. So now I think, I think these conversations really need to be happening. Here, here. Um, Mikey, you seem to be nodding furiously at this. And also, I listened to your interview recently with Danny Boyle, where you're talking about the usually eclectic experiences that you had in your musical education. Stravinsky and Mozart and Barclay saying was a big influence as well, which is not something I expected, but can you tell me more about your experiences? Yeah, I mean, so I guess my dad was a, um, a Roman Catholic. And so it meant that when we was growing up, that's where we would end up going to school. So I went to two Roman Catholic schools from primary um, through to secondary. And um, yeah, interestingly enough, music was on, you know, on both of that, that, you know, that, that school's curriculum, so to speak, because I learned violin, guitar, and um, I found out I could sing by the time I was um, at primary school. And then that took me to um, the county choir. And then that's when I found and learned about harmony. And that really blew my mind, you know, and it was like the best kids of all the county. So you're sitting there and obviously I'm like, I think I was like nine or 10. And so I had like six formers down to, to my age group. And then I'm hearing like seven, 10 part harmonies. And I was just totally blown away about this thing, you know, cause I think I, I didn't really kind of fall in love with hip hop specifically till my teens actually, um, because it hadn't totally come over to the UK in, in the format that it had come in. Um, and there was a track by, um, I think it was NWA called Appetite for Destruction or something like that. And I remember hearing that and thinking, what is this? This is incredible, you know? And I think that was like 1993 or something like that. So by that time it was over here, it was this thing called techno that was being played and then jungle was kind of coming in and then all of a sudden hip hop and it just felt right because everything that else we had was more dancey. It was, um, so it was like snap, it was, um, who else? It was salt and pepper. So it was all kind of like bouncy kind of hip hop style music. Then this rap thing became really dominant. And then it was gangster rap essentially that I was listening to at that time, I didn't know. But so the school experience gave me all of the classical elements because I ended up then going into grade eight singing, which became my GCSE and my A-level um, um, music period at school. But then at the same time I had you know my parents who, who I guess through a combination of love and just seeing the thing that I'm interested in allowed me to do all the other things outside school so that's where the socioeconomic thing that's when 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 Kai was talking about that when you guys were talking about that I was thinking yeah my parents really my dad specifically put his hand in his pocket a lot of the time and sent me to go and sing in the, uh, this one singing place up up in the mayor street so I was doing these things extracurricular as well you know and so these two worlds were par parallel because at that time R&B and, and the, um, I guess the, the, the whole love song kind of era of R&B was out there, you know, um, 
and and that was a thing that I was really, really into the idea of singing in that way. So I had these two lives, so to speak. But then they totally merged when, you know, all of a sudden I, I started making music at the age of 14, 15, and then 16. Do you know what I mean? I, I love strings. I love the idea of all of that. And that's where learning about Stravinsky, Bach, Mozart, all of these different things were kind of coming into my head. And then it's obviously taken me to where I am today, where I compose for theater, I compose for film, I compose for, for TV, you know, and an artist. And it's always a different edge. People are like, Mike, you do that thing so well, but it's my thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it, it's come from all of those influences. So to be honest, the Roman Catholic um, energy, because even singing hymns, all of these things were important to, to that of the upbringing of our school experience. So yeah, it, it became a hodgepodge. And then, oh, well, I cannot not, not say it. Then the African background that I have, my parents are Ghanaian. And so that music was around me all of the time. And specifically, a lot of people know me for my string work, my drums, and then obviously the, the sensibility of music in itself and understanding of, of instruments. And so you can see my life um, in all its facets in that, that way. Drum work from the African part of me, my school time and study at, at um, A level with the strings and, and that. And then, yeah, just just understanding all of the different musical things because um, I played so many different in instruments as well. So yeah, it's 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 made me who I am today. What more can I say? I, I don't know, but yeah, when you made me think about it now, that's that's pretty crazy. That's so cool. Thanks for sharing that story. And Samir, I know you had a cool background. So what do you want to interject? Yeah, I, I just wanted to jump in and 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 kind of um, I, I've had a similar background to Mikey in that I had singing lessons uh, in Indian classical music and in Western music at the same time. And it was only because in 1970s South Manchester, there wasn't such a range of, of, of musical opportunity. So I ended up joining a boys choir and then um, and, and then singing really for the rest of my life. Um, but, you know, it could have gone either way and the techniques for Indian singing and techniques for Western classical singing are very different. So I had to make a choice and it was just about um, opportunity. Um, but just picking up on what Mikey and Kaya have said, it, there, is a, there is of course the socioeconomic barrier, but there's a barrier, an intellectual barrier as well. And I wanted to make a point that this is, for me, this is kind of the last vestige of bias because all our, all our young people, we're always encouraged to send our young people to give them free tickets to, you know, the Royal Albert Hall or, you know, the, the South Bank Centre and, and to listen to music that is written by dead, white, heterosexual men. Um, and, and yet there are, you know, Mikey, you're saying your parents from Ghana, you know, my parents, I grew, I was born actually in India, and like all of these countries have a wonderful musical heritage, and yet we're, we're always supposed to aspire to Western classical music as being the highest form of art, and yet, you know, and I think that just puts so many people off, and yet if we, if we, so here at, at St George's we have a a lovely Somalian youth group, and they're really being encouraged through a Somalian youth leader to engage with their own culture, their own music, because they don't know that stuff growing up. And often, if, as in my case, you know, with first-generation immigrant parents, they want to assimilate. They want their children to speak perfect English without an accent. They want their children to be like little white people, you know, because that that's the experience of being an immigrant. Um, and so the kids miss out, which I think is a real shame. And and and, you know, 
Western classical music shouldn't have to be this kind of aspirational ideal. It should be be the best in whatever music you love. And, you know, the, the, the moment that hip hop becomes like a, you know, on the national curriculum, you know, and studied as an academic subject, I know it's already starting to happen. I say bring it on. I really, you know, that, that it, it shouldn't have to be about orchestral symphonic music. I have to add, I mean, what's interesting for me is I went to university um, at 19. I'd been the first person in our, our family to ever do something like that, essentially. I then drop out and um, at the age of 20 um, and then decide to go and do this music thing gung-ho. Start doing it, you know, eventually get um, published, my first publishing deal at 25 and stuff had been released, you know, I'm around, grime is the music of, our, of my time at that time, I'm doing all of that. And then my whole journey has brought me to where I'm a professor now at Guildhall School of Music and Drama teaching there. I've got my own course that I've built and I'm building a course surrounding hip hop artistry, the idea of seeing it as excellence, because it is, it's 40 years, 40 plus year now, uh, an art form which has done so much more and has so much subgenres which need to be studied. And I think it's just so strange that literally what you said, Samir, is it Samir, sorry? Yeah, literally what you said, Samir, is the thing is, is understanding that what you do is excellent, regardless of the space that it sits in. And that's the thing that I sit with on my back. And I think the fact that I um, dropped out has made it even more potent because I've got here without the traditional elements, you know, I've got to that space without the traditional elements. And when I teach, I say they can do it too, regardless of the background, you can just flip what you're doing and turn it into something. And then kind of just to, to cap it off, what ends up happening is I then do take my parents to my graduation, which was, a, I was given a fellowship at um, Guildhall you know, and, and eventually given a scroll and given it to my parents at the end. So it really does drill home the idea of whatever you're trying to do, find the excellence in that. You know, I just, I had to kind of say that because yeah, there, there is always this way of getting there that people try to put in front of young people specifically, when really, especially with what electronic and digital um, music has allowed people to do it's allowed it to be in people's rooms on their laptops and they can just get stuck in so yeah i'm a true 100 percent advocate of that thank you yeah and well virtuosity takes many different forms and it's interesting to get your insights about classical music it shouldn't just be put on that pedestal i think mike you even have one of your works featured as a set work in the gcc syllabus is that is that correct yeah, so so yeah, we have a piece called Emancipation of Expressionism. Myself and Kenrick made that piece back in 2013. And yeah, it finds itself on the um the the selected works that students have to study. So there's a possibility they will get that on their um, you know, their their end of year exam. So yeah, it's it's that and that's crazy. Uh, I would never have thought that anything like that would happen. I don't even know how you, you get your stuff on there. But yeah, Giza just came up to us and was like, we want to put that work on and it's the first hip hop piece of work, dance work that people have taken on. So yeah, the, the connection with education has always been there in terms of hip hop in itself, because hip hop as an art form, it requires you, you know, it samples, it takes from you and then you overlay yourself onto that thing with which is beats or whatever. So I've always found it um, crazy that we're there, but rightly so, hip hop, um, like Samir saying, it, it needs to be studied because it draws out the thing in people as opposed to places the thing that people need to be on them. Cliff, anything to add on to that? 
Well, firstly, I'd like to celebrate my esteemed panel's inspiring stories. Um, and again, I, I think that the, the thread that I sort of, um, you know, runs through all of those things is early opportunity. You've just seen that the opportunity and, you know, for many of them, it may have been luck rather than judgment or to say what denomination or what school they were in, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thread is giving opportunity early. Now, I was in an East End school where um, there had to be a, you know, there wasn't enough instruments. I didn't ever had. It's one of my only regrets. I spent the rest of my career in the music industry, but never had the opportunity to properly have that, that mastery. But um, I was also I was given an opportunity at the age of uh, 14 to study at Oxford for a summer for um, a trust for poor, gifted boys. Um, and it changed my life. I'd never been on a train, let alone to a university at the life at the age of 14 and um, had my life completely transformed. And it's just the horizons, the horizons of walking into St. John's Oxford or walking into the Royal Albert Hall or walking into a cathedral. And when you're not born of that world, those places are seen as not for you. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, my dad said I wanted, wanted to take us to the theatre. and I, that, that, I literally said that place isn't for us. It's not, it's not for the likes of us. And, you know, I wish it was just a relic of how old I am. I know a number of people that wouldn't see a theatre or an opera house or conservatory or any of those places as for them. And to anyone listening, to anyone in a position of power, just one opportunity, one afternoon, one week, whatever, could change an entire lifestyle. And just in, just in terms of the artistry that comes out of those wonderful serendipitous moments. So let's make serendipity and create opportunity. No matter how small, it will have an impact. Here, here. And as we've heard, it's, um, it's not just I to think about clearly it's the foundation for people's careers on this panel in some cases and that is wonderful but also it's not just about that i think it's about building our culture and giving those opportunities and as you say broadening horizons inspiring people has overwhelming positive impacts but i don't think we need to persuade anyone on this panel about the uh, power of the arts but uh, one of the ways which i feel that um we can make these places concert halls theaters etc more accessible is through programming commissioning and recording industry there's, there's a and r and samir i'd love to come to you first because you mentioned earlier about your programming trying to represent the city of bristol but also about your fundraising experience and i just wonder there's two questions one great to talk about, hear about your programming if you think that does indeed broaden audiences but also can do you think philanthropists can influence programming? Are there perhaps vanity projects which naturally their funding projects are their interest in, which might not necessarily be reflective of the diversity of a city? Uh, yes, I think I'll start with your first question first. Uh, sorry, your second question first around philanthropists and, 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 and impacting change. I mean, I've got positive stories of, of philanthropists, um, you know, for example, the, the, the shocking lack of uh, female conductors and philanthropists. Uh, interested in funding schemes which um, promote opportunities for female conductors at conservatoire level upwards. So I, I think philanthropists can, can make a difference. And what I would say to any fundraisers on the call is just uh, don't be afraid to say no to your donors. If your donors are pushing for projects or initiatives that don't sit right with you, then, then just don't be, and your donor won't respect you any the least or probably won't 
you know, may still carry on giving money to you or give money to another project, but you have to stick true to your, your principles. I think that's really important. Um, in terms of programming, absolutely, you know, there's no point, it's back to what I was saying about classical music, um, you know, being perceived as this, the ultimate art form. And, you know, uh, no matter what kind of ticketing schemes or marketing initiatives we do uh, here at St George's, people are not going to come to a concert if they don't feel the language that is being used amongst the panel just by Cliff now is that, you know, it's not for us. Um, so rather than doing that, you know, we will we will do a whole range of concerts with music musicians from different genres. And, you know, and classical music is actually just um, around 40% of our programme programming in any case we have a lot of spoken word events we have um the wonderful lgbtq activist armistead morpin coming tonight and it's pretty much sold out we've got Ai Weiwei later in the season so we do a lot of spoken word events but again it's just reaching out to communities and doing the stuff that i know they want to engage with um you know we've got a wonderful cafe bar extension which was uh, which is open now again after lockdown you know it's the perfect place for cabaret and drag I think so you know that kind of thing having the diversity program programming and something I'm very keen on is is bringing two genres together as well uh, because it just it it's, it speaks to the society we live in today, where people are living on streets, where people from different communities uh, cohere. And I think one thing lockdown has done is, is bring us all together uh, in, in this country as a community and recognise uh, our neighbours and literally going out and um, clapping for the NHS and actually seeing who your neighbours were. Because I, I lived in North London and traditionally you don't know who your neighbours are and you come out on the street and you can actually see them. Um, so that was really, really nice. And I, I just want to, you know, I, um, I'm just really keen to bring different art forms together. The, this word serendipity Cliff used, you know, like let's just bring two artists in a room together let them talk to each other through their own musical languages and let's see what come out, comes out and that to me speaks to a really modern Britain you know not not kind of just trying to repeat tropes from decades before but just kind of making something that's real for today. Absolutely and I mean Kaya you work a lot at multidisciplinary programming with with poly arts and what have you found from your experiences? Yeah I was just thinking about poly arts as um, you're speaking Samir. Um, Yes, it's all about work. I, I enjoy working for poly arts because it's what we represent is it's a no size fits all um, approach to you know the music industry. It's about we are working with a lot of um, classical musicians, but we're also working with musicians who want to not just stay in this bubble of classical classical music. They want to work with other artists in different genres and explore different um, different ideas, um, and that's why that's why I really like it. <laughs> but also, um, for an example, we work with different composers who are looking at spoken word um, jazz, looking at the history as well of of jazz musicians and what can we do now and how can we mix this with classical and sort of present it to everyone so everyone ha can receive it the way that they want to um and and like you said before it's not about um classical classical music it is sort of on a bit of a pedestal in the sense that this is what's presented to us in schools and so on as this is what we should aim for when really the exciting thing about 
music is that it's creative everyone has their own thing to add um and that's how new genres are made to begin with so i think um yeah i think that's i think that's that's what should be encouraged and i think that a lot of people are trying to encourage it to be honest um which is what we're trying to do <laughs> at the moment thank you and uh mikey i know that you have a broad range of influences in your, your programming and it's also and sometimes grounded in live experience so red i think was was about different stages of grief um black white gray about i think you sent to me the days about your experience um as someone who's definitely diverse and your experience being black and and how that's portrayed in this in this extraordinary trip bill do you think well for you personally but also for the arts and culture more broadly do you think it's important that they we authentically tell these stories yes i mean there is there's two sides to that because essentially like with the the film world um something that i know just between my friendship group and, and other um, colleagues in, in other areas. The idea of focusing on black um, pain has been something that, you know, has, has challenged a lot of people in regards to what's being programmed. What is the things people want to see from us as black people? More often than not, they're not wanting to share our joy. They're not wanting to share the great things that kind of happen with it. Um, and, and I think, when I when making black white gray it did come from that that place of pain but where it ends um, for people who haven't seen it where it ends is the idea of the hope of what could happen next and and I think that that's the the main thing it's 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 trying to 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 have a balanced idea of what people really need to see um and and I think if we're making sure that it's not always the pain that's on the stage, it's not always the 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 trope of the the drama, the 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 bad side of things. Like, I mean, not to to name drop um, and and kills um, <laughs> another piece of work. It was really interesting as I'm a Soprano fan, right? I love the Sopranos. Uh, when finding it um, in my my twenties and and watching it, you know, it was just like, wow, this is crazy. Then the you know the I forgot how to say the name, but the Newark thing came out and, you know, they brought, you know, his son in to kind of be the, the, the Tony Soprano, the young Tony Soprano and watching it, it just felt so random that they put in, put in the black story of it, which was, you know, these riots that happened in Newark, which they tried to kind of put alongside this Soprano story, come to find out that initially, um, you know, David Chase had wanted to make a story about the rights. And that was his original plan. And it was just like, why? This is about the Sopranos. Why does this have to be in there? And it did feel like it was in there to kind of satisfy the concepts of what people want to see on their television screens now or seem to be doing now. And I think when choices are made like that, it, it's really, really painful for me because it's a lost opportunity to talk about something else that matters, that people can see, rather than trying to satisfy the idea of the quota that needs to be on your screens or in your space. Um, and yeah, you know, Black, White, Grey as a show was me trying to create something that was excellent. It wasn't me trying to tell a story. I have no other story because I have one life. I am who I am. So I'm just going to tell my thing just as every other person did, but I want to make something excellent. And it's always challenging because the reason why also Black, White, Grey was made was from a programming point of view to a degree. 
because when we come to them with some of our other shows, which the price tag is probably the same as like a ballet piece, they're like, I can't sell this. The tickets don't make any sense because essentially what you'd have to play when you hear a hip hop show, you're thinking kids, young people, you know, the tier that you have to put it in as a ticket is going to be much lower. You can't go for that 90, that 80 pound ticket. So all of a sudden, when you see the price tag, even though it's trying to be excellent work, it's good work. Did you enjoy it? Did you like it? But then you know you can't sell it. This is when we have this, you know, this this kind of debate between business, good business, and what is good and what should be on your stage. And and I think that's the thing that we're finding tricky for ourselves from a programming point of view, the sense that you want to try and put something excellent. And and essentially that's why we made black, white, grey actually quite cheaper to number one tour to be out there it has no props you know the, the show i'm talking about was called the five and that had like it was a manga shaolin kung fu hip-hop mashup and it had projection screens it had manga stuff going on it had a massive piece of set you know this black white gray was actually quite small and, and lightweight and and so yeah we're having to battle that you know which is trying to do good business but then also at the same time still provide excellence in the vein of what is hip-hop and I think I don't have the answer, but I would definitely say it's it's the challenge that I've, I find myself in and the company finds itself in this time now is that people don't think they can sell our work in the same way they could sell another piece of work because it just makes much more money. So do you feel that actually in some for certain topics of your work, themes of your work, actually undervalued? and hip hop more generally, or is it hip hop more generally? It's it's more, I guess, the, the, the connotation of what hip hop as an art form um, says to people who are really, number one, probably quite ignorant on, or number two, are, aren't really schooled on what hip hop is as an art form. They don't know that it has filled, you know, the concert hall at the Barbican, you know, with, with uh, Miguel Atwood and he him taking Jay Diller who is one of our pre, you know, our, our prima donnas as a, a, a hip hop producer, he, he can fill that space, but they don't see that they don't know it. They don't know that that work can fit in that space and can command because number one as well, it's not only poor, you know, people of color from a particular part of town that love the music. It's everybody. It, it hits all um, parts of the world, there's loads of people who, who are going to be in their 50s and 60s who grew up with it, who grew up with hip hop, who grew up with that genre as a part of their day. They could they could probably talk about their life in hip hop songs, you know, but when you have that ignorance, when you don't understand that part of the world, because you're just not exposed to it, you might look at that ticket and think, oh, yeah, we can't sell that or that can't make sense or we can't find a way to make it work, you know. Um, so I, I would definitely say it's, it's a less a challenge of, of us, it's more people kind of being exposed to that or being open to trying to see how deep literally the rabbit hole goes with, with what our art form is, essentially. I hope that asked the question, by the way. No, it does. And it, it's absolutely the thinking. And it's a recurring theme of this is opportunity, exposure from all, all genres and challenging perceptions. And I think that's just really important. Cliff, I'm going to come to you and hopefully you can 
how round us off in a, in a wonderful way. I'm sure you will. But uh, what are your, do you resonate with some of these experiences and reflections and or from an A&R recording industry point of view, but also more generally? Um, I just think that, and again, it, it's a loaded term, but the more diversity, you know, it's it just leads to even more creativity, even more genre, even more inspiration. And also most importantly, to take the state of the art forward. Um, a lot of what I do, it's about bringing together technology, which, of course, is a great leveler in terms of opportunity and giving people the opportunity to create and curate as well. It gives people the opportunity to be able to experiment and develop all of that. And, and for me, this incredible melting pot from an arts perspective and everything that Mikey and Samir and Kai have talked about as well are, represents a fantastic springboard for even greater art. The idea that this stuff is being diluted rather than actually what's really happening, which is an opportunity for it to be developed and to be stimulating yet further, it's a tremendous opportunity. And you know, for anyone that thinks that great art is lost rather than actually really what it needs to do is to be remixed. You know, it needs to be embraced as a remix. You know, remix is something that's seen as something that comes of hip hop culture and sampling, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, really, that's just another word for, you know, creative sparks and new places to take things. You know, some of the pieces which I have experienced, actually, that Mikey was talking about as well, and seeing that kind of cross collaboration, that fertilization, that pollinization really represents the exciting place where the arts can go. And, you know, this is why it needs to be celebrated, you know, to anyone listening that thinks the topic of diversity is a oh, moment without actually realizing it's an ah moment. You know, it's an opportunity to really be seized. Um, and with that as well, you know, we, we've got entire art forms that have been built on the most marginalized in society in relation to sexuality, race, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Let's celebrate it. And if you are actually rather building on the back of these people, but actually have these people lifting it up further, it's going to be even greater. Well, that was brilliant and a wonderful note to finish on. So thank you very much. And thanks to all four of you, to, to Mikey, Kaya, Cliff and Samir. Truly, you provided extremely insightful and inspiring contributions to the discussion. And we have only just begun. We'll be back for more on this topic. So check, listen out for that. Thank you also to Holly Gedge, Fiona Livingston, and our sound editor, Merlin Thomas. Our theme music is composed by Robert Cochran. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you haven't done so already, be sure to check out all the other episodes from The Culture Bar with topics ranging from women in publishing to how the arts can respond to the climate emergency. We've had guests from the BBC to the British Museum, from former professional football referees to members of the UK Parliament. And to get all that and more, please subscribe. Until next time. Thank you.